Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holger Dressler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Patricia O'Brien, an associate professor at Australian National University in Canberra, about her recent book, Tautai, Samoa, World History and the Life of Taisi O.F. Nelson, published by University of Hawaii Press in 2017. In this first biography of Taisi O.F. Nelson, O'Brien chronicles the life of a man described as the arch enemy of New Zealand and the British Empire. He was Samoa's richest man who used his wealth and unique international access to further the Samoan cause and was financially ruined in the process. In the aftermath of the First World War, Taisi embraced nonviolent resistance as a means to combat a colonial surge in the Pacific that gripped his country for nearly two decades. Taisi ran a global campaign of letter writing, petitions, and a newspaper to get his people's plight heard. For his efforts, he was imprisoned and exiled, not once, but twice from his homeland of Samoa. Today, Taisi is remembered as one of the founding fathers of independent Samoa. Patricia O'Brien, welcome to the show. Thank you, Holger. Nice to be here. Patricia, I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, um, I was uh, born in Sydney um, in a... Uh, inner city suburb called Darlinghurst uh, in Sydney, and that's where I grew up um, on the Pacific Ocean, um, spending a lot of time there, a lot of time, you know, contemplating life on the Pacific. Uh, and I started uh, when I went to university, uh, I went to the University of Sydney. Uh, I, I began gravitating towards studying history, which was a subject I always loved at high school. And then, you know, as I sort of advanced as an undergraduate, I became, you know, really fascinated by, um, uh, you know, the new movements in post-colonial history and also women's history. And I started researching um, histories of Indigenous women in Australia uh, southeastern Australia, and from from there, uh, I sort of realised that you know Australian history doesn't end at its coastline, but Australian history is something which is intimately tied into the Pacific Ocean. And so, after I finished my uh, undergraduate work, I in in my postgraduate work, I began. Uh, you know, really diving into Pacific history, and uh, my first uh, my first deep study was about uh, colonial representations of Indigenous women in the Pacific, and I very much, you know, structured that that study as uh, these colonial representations being a mirror of colonial preoccupations. Um, so I, you know, I sort of looked at how these images were changed and altered to reflect the preoccupations of colonials, but also I was very interested in putting real women into this history. So going beyond stereotypes and archetypes, but real women who've shaped history in the Pacific. So Indigenous women, and so from from that point on, I've really been very focused on 
Indigenous-centred histories uh, in Australia, in the Pacific, and in the you know wider British Empire, and that's the kind of um, that's where I kind of was, uh, you know, about ten years ago, really, when I um, I, I was studying um, the uh, Australian League of Nations mandate in New Guinea. Um, and I, I became increasingly interested in that period between the wars, between the First World War and the Second World War, which I'd really kind of glossed over in my earlier uh, studies. But I really found in the 20th century and particularly be- between the wars and this whole sort of shifting uh, of imperial ownership and, you know, the rise of Indigenous resistance movements and the, um, the uh, rise of, um, you know, race theories and eugenics, that this was a really rich time to study. And this is how I sort of came to be looking at this period in history uh, after World War One, where, as you said, there was this huge colonial surge in the Pacific. Right. Thanks for the for the background, and that leads us right to right to the book. Um, so I wanted to ask you really how do you came to write this biography of Taisi, uh, such a towering figure in Samoa, and, and indeed, as you argue, in uh, world history as well. Um, how how did you get to to Taisi or if Nelson? Well, that is a very interesting story. And uh, basically the context is is that I had been awarded a fellowship, uh, the J.D. Stout Fellowship to Victoria University Wellington in 2012. And my, uh, my, my remit was to study New Zealand's mandate of Samoa because, I, as I said, I, I'd already been looking at Australia's mandated League of Nations mandate in New Guinea. So I thought, well, why don't I do a study of, of uh, New Zealand's mandate in Samoa and, you know, compare and contrast? And it was all very kind of, um, uh, you know, very vague, I suppose, you know, 10 years ago what I wanted to do. But in 2012, it was 50 years since, uh, it just happened to be 50 years since uh, Samoa got its independence from New Zealand in 1962. So there was a whole lot of, um, you know, uh, you know, celebrations marking this occasion, looking back, happening, which I wasn't, you know, um, necessarily sort of structuring my uh, study around that. It just, these things just happened to coincide. Um, and I was, uh, and it was also the um, year after the big earthquake in Christchurch. And what that, how that impacted me was that the, um, there was a whole lot of, uh, you know, uh, reinforcing work going on on buildings in, in Wellington. And the library, uh, the National Library of New Zealand was actually uh, closed for reinforcement. So the library and the National Archives of New Zealand were both housed together when I got there 
which meant that everything I kind of needed was all there and all these experts were, uh, librarians and archivists were around to kind of uh, fast-track my discovery of Taisi. And so what basically happened uh, was that uh, one day I was looking in these um, files of uh, New Zealand's League of Nations, uh, you know, there's a lot of files in the National Archives about Samoa and the League of Nations. And uh, I was actually just looking for a reference because I was finishing up a, a publication on Australia and New Guinea, but I had this big fat file and I started going through it. And I kept coming across all these letters from uh, New Zealand officials getting really uh, exercised about this man called Mr. Nelson. Mm. And I kept I kept seeing all these references to him and really heated language and, um, you know, really sort of, uh, you know, colourful and, you know, you know, that he was just this treacherous figure and that they wanted to do away with him. I mean, I don't mean like, um, you know, they wanted to sort of disempower him and, uh, you know, cut him out of this power structure. And I mean, there was all kinds of things going on. And so I'm sitting there thinking, well, who is this Mr. Nelson? Because I'm looking, you know, this is, uh, you know, New Zealand governing Samoa. And of course, Nelson is not a, uh, you know, a traditional Samoa name. And so I asked uh, a librarian, I said, look, I've just been reading these uh, archives and um, there's this person called Mr. Nelson who keeps coming up. And she directed me to a, uh, a set of microfilmed letters uh, that, that, uh, they, that the library had. And, but I wasn't able to look at these letters unless I got permission from the family. And the family, the head of the person, the contact person who was head of the uh, the family that I had to contact also happened to be the head of state of Samoa at the time, Tuia Tua to poor Tamasisi Effi. So I was like, well, how on earth am I going to, you know, make contact with this person, this extremely famous person in the Pacific? And, you know, me just being a, uh, you know, a lowly researcher and how am I going to make contact with this person? <laughs> well, New Zealand being a very small place, I actually um, was, you know, I bumped into a colleague from Victoria on the street and I was telling her all about um, about what I'd found and she said, oh, well, you know that this other person who works with us is very close to to the to the head of state and and this person her name is um Tamasilao Sauli Sauni who now is at Auckland University and I met her one night and I was you know just telling her about everything that I'd found and you know just how fascinating this person was and all the you know just running with all these things that I'd seen and you know and I couldn't understand I mean, it was already very apparent to me how important this person was. 
And I kept thinking to myself, why have there been no books written about him, let alone like three books or four books? Why are there no books about this person? And there was also three uh, experts in New Zealand uh, history at Victoria. And I asked each of them, I said, have you heard of a person called uh, Olaf Nelson? Uh, O.F. Nelson, and two of them had not heard of him, and one of them had, only one. Um, so to sort of like, uh, you know, end this story about how I came to sort of write this book, the night after I met uh, Thomas Silau and I was, you know, thinking about all these things, I kind of had this sort of moment in the middle of the night where I thought, I need to write a book, you know, do this, uh, you know, look at this mandate uh, question about New Zealand and its mandate. I need to write that up as a biography of this person, but I could only possibly contemplate doing that if the family was willing to, um, you know, have me do it. And I contacted uh, Silao the next day and I sort of said that much to her and she emailed me straight back and said, I'm so glad you think that because I've already contacted His Highness and he would like to meet you. And then oh. and then within a couple of weeks I was um, in Apia uh, sitting at Taisi's desk uh, and going through his papers that no one had ever used before. And that's sort of like how I came. I mean, it, it just opened up this incredible uh gold mine of of uh of of history and that's how that kind of started so it's sort of like this uh it's very much a story about being in the right place at the right time and also um you know the small world of new zealand and how these connections these incredible historical connections are made just because I happened to bump into someone, you know, walking around the streets of Wellington. Uh, and and uh, that happened several times with the book, actually, and big advances with the, um, with the, with the, with the historical connections just by uh, meeting people. That's amazing. Uh, I think that's great to hear that uh, some of the historical research is actually, you know, f f uh, by accident sometimes. It's not always planned out. And uh, text and context came together there, the archive, and then also the the time and the, the people you ran into. That's amazing. Mm. Um, before we get into um, Nelson himself, Taisi himself, and uh, want to learn more about him, of course, I wanted to ask you a more sort of methodological question before we jump in um, about the choice of biography as a genre. Um, mm -hmm. You just started talking about that, that you thought maybe actually a biography is needed. There was no biography of this uh, important figure in Samoan and Pacific history. So um, I wanted to 
you know, ask you about um, that choice of biography and how you approach the balance between an individual life um, and the larger structural forces in which uh, this individual was embedded. Um, biography in the United States, at least, is a quite popular history genre. This is kind of the best-selling genre of history mm. writing of presidents and uh, and and others. Um, so, uh, how did you approach this 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 particular genre of historical writing? Oh well, um, you know, it's always. Um uh i hadn't i hadn't you know written uh, a biography before but as i as i mentioned you know my first big study i did sort of have small biographies of women uh throughout the story so you know there was right. there was those sort of like flesh and blood characters that i had in the in the first book because i really i really believe that you know, history comes alive when you only, only when you are talking about, you know, flesh and blood people and you're not talking about, you know, big meta narratives and bird's eye views of history and so forth. That, But I, I feel like in order to make a life make sense, though, you do need to pan back and look at, you need to go back and look at the bigger context and you need to keep having these sort of like, uh, you know, I always think of it as like a camera panning in and panning out uh, from people's, uh, people's lives. And um, with, with Taisi's story, I mean, it's very much one about, you know, a person and it's about a family, it's about a village, it's about uh, an island, it's about uh, you know uh, the 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 Samoan Islands, and then it's about you know the Pacific, and then he he has um, uh, you know strong European connections. Anyone who's studied colonial Samoa, like yourself, knows that there's so many uh, European layers to Samoa's history uh, from the 19th century. Uh, right. and, and Taisi was a bit different from. Uh, many of those uh, those those layers because his uh, bloodlines came from Sweden, whereas a lot of um, a lot of his relatives and a lot of uh, a lot of um, Samoans have you know German uh, ancestral lines. Um, so you know the story, you know, it, it, I I don't know if it was. Um, I, I don't know if I have the magic answer about how to, uh, you know, balance the context, you know, and and the and the life of of a person and tell the story because I I always feel like I'm, um, uh, you know, I always feel it's a bit of a struggle to to keep uh, focused on the life, uh, you know, but of course. The way you tell a story, the way you write a history, is always determined by the sources that you have available to you. Uh, so that's—I I was just very fortunate to have uh, enough material that I could have, uh, you know, tell a story and track someone's life uh, and and very intimate detail about 
his life, which I find is, you know, they're my favourite parts of the book when I'm talking about his great love affairs, which is really, you know, the the Mm. love he has for his daughters and the love he has for his country. Um, But that, that part of the story would have been completely opaque if it wasn't for the assistance of the family because, you know, they're the ones who are the keepers of that history. And the fact that they were able to share that with me and that they were very willing to share that with me, I think uh, made the book so much, so much richer. Uh, If I didn't have access to those um, family stories, uh, then I think the book would have been, you know, a much... Uh, you know, a, a much less deep and revealing history, and it would have been much more about, you know, a public figure and a political cause, and basically whatever, uh, you know, documents I could find in the in the, you know publicly accessible documents. Right. Yeah, I asked about the biography because I think you do an excellent job of like keeping that balance between the life and the the context, um, sort of uh, padding uh, out and in, in, in zooming in as you as you say, said yourself. Uh, so let's uh, talk about the subject of your biography uh, about this uh, man, Olaf Frederick Nelson. Uh, tell us a little bit about him. Who was he? Uh, where was he born? When? Um, and we'll start sort of with the with the childhood and then and then go from there. Okay, well, he was um, he was born in 1883 in the village of Safune on the the island of Savai in in Samoa, and as I mentioned, his bloodlines were uh, Swedish. Uh, his father through his paternal line, his father uh, August Nelson uh, came to Samoa uh, with. At the time when a lot of the uh, early uh, European men were coming to Samoa, uh, at the beginning of the plantation economy uh, that was beginning in Samoa in the 1860s, um, he came in the 1860s. Uh, and one of the ways that these incoming men were able to establish themselves in Samoa was through marrying. Uh, local women and that is what August Nelson did he married a, a highborn woman uh, from the village uh, of Safune um, singer Noel Masoi whose family were very um, uh, you know very, very uh, dominant family in in uh, in Savai uh, in their village of Safune but also in the village of Asal which is where the um, uh, Masoi family had their, you know, th- that was the, sort of the centre of the of the Masoi family. Um, so Taisi uh, was born in in Safune in in 1883, um, and he had uh, a younger brother, and he had three sisters, um, and he he, you know, Safune was a very small little village. And his uh, family moved to Apia when he was uh, quite young so he could go to school. And he went to school at the Maris Brothers School in Apia. And he he went to school. Uh, he was very good at school, 
but he only went to school till he was 13 years old. And that was something that really amazed me when I was reading his letters. Uh, you know, I've read so much of his writings and I was always, I mean, I couldn't believe when someone, when, you know, I sort of dawned on me that he actually hadn't gone to university or something because his writing was so beautiful and perfect every single time. And, but he'd only gone to school uh, till he was 13 years old. And at which point he uh, went to work for the big um, German plantation company, DHPG, that really dominated the economy, the plantation economy of Samoa at the time. And he was an apprentice there, uh, started out as sort of, you know, right down the bottom of the of the uh, the ladder uh, at DHPG, and then he he worked there until he um, he joined his family firm, uh, and his father's uh, company became uh, you know, August Nelson and Son uh, in the uh, and and they began their own. Uh, commercial enterprise uh, that was sort of a multifaceted uh, business enterprise in uh, that, that had, uh, you know, shipping uh, very much shaped around the copper industry uh, and, the, and uh, also, um, you know, mercantilist shops uh, scattered around the islands. Uh, and that's how he sort of began his... Um, his, uh, you know, his adulthood really was sort of, you know, working in the family business and that involved travelling around the Pacific too because they had uh, outposts in um, uh, Auckland uh, and also in Sydney. Right, so uh, Taisi early on was already traveling in the region, and then he would go on to travel the world. Um, yes. Let's move into the into interwar period or the 1920s, um, where lots of stuff is happening. There's a, a Spanish flu and influenza epidemic that hits um, Western Samoa quite quite uh, brutally, um, uh, with uh, over 8,000 Western Samoans um, uh, succumbing to that uh, pandemic. Um, And then uh, Taisi, uh, sort of in his younger years, in his in his thirties, coming into his own, uh, connecting with other um, political movements, um, and then the origins of the Samo and Mao. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about what the connections were between um, Taisi and the Mao, and what else he was up to in these in this important decade? Yes, well, Taisi was sort of. Um Yeah, as you said, his um, his his life was um, as a lot of Samoan lives were was you know fundamentally changed by the influenza epidemic which hit in November 1918, and Taisi lost um, several members of his own family. Uh, he lost his mother, he lost his younger brother, he lost a sister. Um, He lost uh, his son, his youngest son. Um, his father had already uh, passed away um, by this point. So Taisi, uh, you know, was running the company 
himself, uh, the, fam- the, the family company, which was, um, uh, which because of the war, um, uh, because of the First World War and the, uh, the sort of the, the methods of controlling Germans, uh, the, the large numbers of Germans who, you know, instantly became sort of uh, enemy aliens in Samoa. Um, a lot of them lo- lost their, uh, you know, their their economic stakes in uh, in Samoa, and that was sort of like the end of the, you know, sudden end of the uh, DHPG is sort of like dominating um, the economy of Samoa. And Taisi, because he wasn't German himself, uh, because he was Swedish, he was able to take advantage of this. Uh, this situation, uh, you know, where where a whole lot of co- competitors were because of their uh, connections with Germany were kind of moved out of the the picture instantly. He was able to fill that void, and so he was able to rapidly expand his business um, uh, during the war. Um, and then after the war, too, in nineteen in the nineteen twenties. He consolidated his father-in-law's business too. Uh, his father-in-law was an American, um, Harry Moores, and he um, he also had a very uh, uh, substantial, you know, a business not dissimilar to the Nelson uh, business. And Taisi was able to absorb that as well. So by around uh, 1923 or so, Taisi was you know, a very singular figure in uh, in Samoa because he was um, uh, very wealthy. He was very urbane. He was uh, he he was a spokesperson for um, for the Samoan people and an interlocutor, if you like, between the uh, New Zealand administration. And I should, you know, just to sort of uh, backtrack a bit, that New Zealand. Uh, took over German Samoa in in 1914 uh, as their first act uh, of World War One. Uh, so New Zealand was occupying Samoa from as a military occupation uh, in 1914, and then in 1921, with the advent of the League of Nations, uh, when that sort of came into effect. Uh, Samoa became officially became a League of Nations mandate, and this is when uh, you have a number of things happening, and sort of like Taisi becoming a political figure, because you have the uh, the Mao movement. Uh, the first one really happens as a direct reaction to what was seen as New Zealand's gross incompetence in allowing the influenza epidemic to uh, wipe out over a quarter of the population in a very short period of time. So the years of, you know, the end of 1918, uh, 1919 and and beyond that, Samoa was, you know, ravaged by this uh, epidemic. And it also, uh, unlike the our current pandemic, the influenza epidemic killed a lot of children. It also killed their young parents. So 
So there was this real, um, uh, you know, the 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 loss of uh, children, but also the loss of um, the young uh, leaders and also young uh, working uh, people had a really drastic impact on um, on you know society and the economy in Samoa. Um, and so the first sort of real, really uh, strong protest movement against New Zealand, the first Mal, really erupts in 1919 as sort of a direct result of the, uh, of the influenza epidemic and all its ramifications. Um, and Taisi was a spokesperson for the Samoans to New Zealand at that point. Um, he was, uh, you know, trying to work with New Zealand and sort of um, get them to, uh, you know, to to do things that were of, you know, to, to ameliorate what was a really sort of bad situation in Samoa. Um, so there are a lot of the early letters uh, that, that you find with Taisi writing to government officials and so on, really date from that period. Um, he, you know, and then the uh, his political um, presence increased again in 1923 when he became one of three elected members of a very of a representative of the only representative uh, elected representative body in in Samoa. The Legislative Council, which was basically uh, allowing the European community in Samoa to have uh, some kind of political voice. Uh, and then in that capacity, he again was trying to work with the New Zealand authorities, but then the, um, the, the administrator at the time, uh, um, uh, an ex-general from um, New Zealand, uh, George Stafford Richardson, who, who came to be administrator in 1923. In 1926, uh, when he was uh, you know, still uh, administrator of Samoa, he began doing things that really began to uh, enrage Samoan people. And that was uh, essentially things that were about interfering intimately in the family and cultural uh, workings of Samoa and also he, he wanted to institute these really uh, clear and uh, unbroachable uh, barriers between the European community and the Indigenous Samoan community. And these were things which Taisi found profoundly uh, Offensive, he he really uh, bristled against the um, what he saw as the ad, this administrator, you know, acting as a dictator in in Samoa, and also this uh, interference in the in the uh, the Fa'a Samoa, you know, the basic workings of Samoa, and that's when you have this sort of eruption in 1926 of the next uh, Mao movement, um, which, which uh, became 
a a global a global fight and and one in which uh, led to Taisi being exiled, as as you mentioned before. Right. So let's dive a little bit deeper into this complicated period in the in the sort of the second half of the 1920s and into the 1930s. Um, uh, so uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, Nelson's mixed race background that you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. Um, you write um, later on in the book that New Zealand officials constantly blamed uh, people of mixed race descent for political unrest in Samoa. Mm -hmm. um, I found that quite quite interesting. And uh, you just mentioned that Nelson was kind of, uh, you know, bridging, negotiating, mediating between um European settler community and uh, Samoans, um, uh, but he, in some ways, belonged into both communities. So, yeah. um, uh, how did New Zealand officials sort of frame um, this uh, increasing protest in Samoa, and what was Nelson's role in all of that? Well, that's a big question. I'll try and um, <laughs> I'll try and answer it in a in a concise way. But yeah, the thing about um, race the the issues about race and about you know picking and i picking a racial identity uh and basically sticking with it uh is something which uh taisi had to grapple with all the time this sort of you know he was as you said someone who uh who wasn't someone who just saw himself as European. He saw himself as a Samoan with European, uh, you know, European connections. He was someone who, I mean, he, he, he really had, he really is an interesting study in someone who was, you know, this is a time where there was incredible prejudices against people who are mixed race. Uh, not just in Samoa, but in all kinds of uh, national settings. And, um, you know, this was especially the case in my home country of, of Australia. There was a lot of prejudice against Indigenous people who had, uh, you know, mixed-race parentage. Um, and, you know, this is all part of the eugenic mindset where, uh, you know, it, it, where they sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the doctrine was that if you had any kind of dilution of your Europeanness, that this sort of degraded you as a person. I mean, this is all the, you know, in, incredibly uh, ugly racist ideas, which, you know, I wish I could say were all in our past, but I don't, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that that's a bit too optimistic. But anyway, the, the, the point is what, what Taisi had to constantly negotiate was this um, invitation, if you like, that he always had from uh, New Zealand that he basically uh, abandon his the, the Samoan people who he doesn't see as sort of separate from himself because the Samoan people are his blood, they are his kin. You know, they're his mother's family. They're people who he, you know, that 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 he uh, cares for and he looks after as the head of the family. Uh, by 1923, he'd become a Matai. Uh, he'd got a Matai title um, from his mother's village of Asal. Um, 
the that was the Taisi title, and and according to Samoan custom, once you are given a a Matai title, that that becomes you know the name that you are referred to. So that's why I call him Taisi because that was his Matai title. So he was someone who who um, who you know found the whole notion that he pick one of his identities over the other, he found that really abhorrent and it was something that made him extremely angry. And this was, uh, you know, it was always a bit of a mystery. Um, Taisi was a a Methodist. He was a very devout Methodist. But I I kind of knew that he had a dispute with um, the Methodist clergy in, in Samoa and I could never... Uh, I never could understand why. I knew there was, um, you know, a lot of animus. And it wasn't until I was reading the uh, uh, letters of the administrator who was uh, in, in uh, you know, governing the New Zealand administrator before uh, Richardson, the person I just mentioned who sparked the uh, second male movement. But when I was reading his predecessor's letters, I came across a letter which, you know, sort of answered that question because he was writing about how uh, Taisi was just enraged because one of the uh, Methodist ministers had basically told him that he had to, he sort of, you know, framed it like a horse race and said you can't ride uh, the brown horse and the white horse together. You have to pick a horse um, you know, so this whole thing about race and horse races and picking a coloured horse, uh, you know, Taisi just found that just so, uh, so abhorrent and it just started this, uh, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, this really sort of uh, fractious relationship that he had with the with the Methodist clergy, which... Uh, sort of continued on, which is sort of um, interesting given that he was such a devout man. Uh, but he, he, he hated the small-mindedness of, of racists and the implications of what they were saying. And, you know, he, he, so, so these issues were extremely important, but not only for his own self-identity, but also for the way that New Zealand envisaged Samoa working uh, as a as a colony of theirs, and that was that they would, uh, you know, that they could separate out the different communities within Samoa, and that they were basically there. You know, they had this whole colonial mission for the indigenous Samoans and that the European Samoans were not to interfere or to have any, uh, uh, you know, they had, no, they had no rights to interfere with what was happening with their Indigenous uplift agenda. But, of course, human relations are far more complicated than racial theories, you know, could accommodate. Um, you know, the, the, the racial theories are dehumanising and they reduce people and that is something which is you know really at the core of this story and why 
the protest movements in Samoa uh, erupted and became as sort of fervent and as protracted as they as they did. And Taisi as uh, took on the role of someone who uh, was going to, uh, you know, be the be the leader of, of the Samoan people, and for that he was severely punished. Uh, as you said, he was exiled for close to ten years, uh, and there was a whole lot of other sort of, uh, uh, you know, a part of that was to sort of ruin him financially and to uh, humiliate him, and uh, you know all of those things that that they did. Uh, but he still uh, persisted in trying to bring about justice for Samoans. And what justice meant in the 1920s and the 1930s was was for democracy to be extended to Samoan people because Taisi, as, right. as I mentioned, he spent a lot of time in, in New Zealand and he could see the way that... Uh, Maori people had a stake in the in the national government of of New Zealand, and he was he was like, well, why can't Samoans be treated the same way? And and he never accepted any of the uh, reducing dogma of the racist ideas which New Zealand was, you know, using as their way of governing Samoa. So that's sort of like where the real clash uh, was happening uh, with those ideas and and their implications. Yeah, uh, I mean, Nelson was only one of many um, people of mixed race descent who led uh, global struggles against colonialism and racism uh, in the 20th century. Uh, And I think he's much understudied, you know, in this kind of global comparative perspective. Um, So I wanted to um, sort of ask you about the, the later years of his life in the 1930s and he would he would pass away in in 1944 um mm-hmm. you evaluate Taisi's life at, towards the end of the biography uh, you call him a modernizer who fought to expand democracy as you just mentioned um with two notable blind spots you also say that um, he wasn't such a big fighter for the rights of women and also of of, of Chinese um, settlers mm-hmm. in, in in Samoa. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted to have you elaborate a little bit more on that. Um, how would you evaluate Taisi's life? How does he fit into other uh, anti-colonial, decolonial, and also anti-racist, uh, pro-democratic struggles uh, around the same time, say in the first half of the 20th oh. century? Oh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I I... I don't know if I'm quite, you know, if I'm qualified to kind of, uh, you know, speak to that uh, with any kind of expertise, except to say that, you know, it was, you know, as I, um, as I studied him and as he became uh, better known during the years that I was writing about him, and as I, you know, became more apparent to me about his contemporaries and people who, um, you know, were, you know, trying to uh, win the same outcomes that Taisi was hoping to to uh, achieve in Samoa, that, you know, he was someone who was, who really stood out um, 
in in that whole uh, pantheon of nationalist leaders and and colonial resistors that were uh, that were active in this period. Um, and and you know there, there's people who've written you know much better uh, uh, comparative work than 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 me. I mean that wasn't um, real you know really what I was um, uh, working on with you know putting him in in into that context of other individuals. But you know certainly he was looking at what other people were doing. Uh, he was some he was uh, writing about other people trying to publicise that to Samoan people uh, through his newspaper, the Samoan mm-hmm. Guardian, uh, which was a very important part of the story too. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I... Sorry, I can't remember the other part of your question now, Holger. Sorry. The... Um, I just wanted to know if he, you know, if you had any thoughts on how um, his sort of pro-democratic organizing oh, yes. uh, for Samoan self-determination um, uh, sort of compared, you know, in the Pacific, maybe globally, but also his blind spots on, you know, yeah. uh, the inclusion of women in the political process and also uh, some sort of perpetuation of stereotypes of Chinese uh, settlers mm. and also mixed race Chinese people in, yeah. in Samoa and elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so as far as women are concerned, uh, you know, Taisi was someone who, um, yeah. The the thing about women, it's a complicated uh, question because, as I mentioned to you, he was the father of six daughters. Right. Uh, who he was incredibly devoted to, and the descendants who I, you know, all the family that I work with, they are all descended from his daughters. So they were the grand, you know, the mothers and the grandmothers of the of the people that I worked uh, very closely with. Um, some of them remembered uh, Taisi when you know they were small children, uh, but. Uh, you know, they were they were very small when he died in um, in 1944, as you mentioned. Um, so the thing about his, you know, the, his daughters and the way he 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 um, he thought about women was that the he he believed very much in women being educated. Um, he was his daughters were. Uh, you know, went to schools in Sydney and New Zealand. Uh, his um, his daughter uh, Malay Enafal, uh, she became uh, a lawyer um, and was one of the first uh, women to uh, to graduate in law from uh, Auckland University and to. Um, to uh, be admitted to the bar in in New Zealand, so she's a real trailblazer in terms of her uh, professional career. Uh, and so the so the thing is that there was this sort of disconnect between uh, power in society, power in the family, and political power, and political power. Um, and Taisi was. Uh, as I said, I always found it sort of, um, 
you know, I'd always wish that he was like a, a feminist and that he he promoted, uh, you know, the the enfranchisement and political empowerment of women, but that was not something that he pushed. Uh, and you know, I I have you know, to me, it seems incongruous with his. Uh, his other stances about women having power in the community, in families, and pushing for his daughters to have uh, professional careers if they wanted to. Um, but, yeah, so I could never kind of reconcile that. And also, you know, I never found that he wrote anything about it. You know, he, it's just something which... Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't anything that he kind of addressed directly. Uh, it was just something that he, uh, you know, he he was someone who wanted to break down all these barriers, but uh, making politics a realm for Samoan women was not one of those uh, was not one of those things, and I can't really explain why, except that he because he didn't really address it directly. Um, now, as far as the Chinese are concerned, um, he did, uh, you know, there was a lot of prejudice against Chinese at the time. And uh, that was something that, you know, Taisi also uh, absorbed this idea about, uh, about Chinese. Because the Chinese in Samoa, uh, at the time when he was uh, alive, um, that they had been brought in as indentured labourers and there was very much a sense that they were not of the same, uh, I guess, sort of like cultural racial strata as Samoans and and also Europeans. Um, so that was something, again, which, you know, I wished that, you know, when, when, you, when you're studying someone and so intimately sort of involved with someone who is so enlightened in so many ways, it's like you wished that they were also enlightened in all ways, but he wasn't. Uh, and again, uh, you know, he was someone who had, human failings and he had short-sightedness and I think in these two uh, arenas about the Chinese and about uh, and about uh, women as being politically active I think that that's that's two things where I think he, he really did have shortcomings a complicated human being after all. Um, thank you so much for this uh, overview of Taisi's life. We didn't really uh, touch on, on, on all of the aspects. If you're interested in learning more, please read uh, Patricia's book. Um, I wanted to end with asking you about um, what else you're working on right now. You finished this book, came out a few years ago. Um, yep. What are you up to? What have you been up to since? Okay, well, lately I've been very much involved with Uh, writing about the Samoan constitutional crisis, uh, which right. actually just ended last week. Um, right. uh, and it's been really, um, it's been really uh, watching what's been unfolding in Samoa this, uh, 
over the past few months and actually starting from last year where uh, were a lot of uh, there was a lot of echoes of the 1920s in what was hap- what Samoa has been going through in the past over the past year or so and uh, so yeah all these yeah there's been so many things that uh, you know very clear to anyone who knows the history about the 1920s about the things that were happening now uh, and the the rise of the political movement uh, and the constitutional crisis uh, the uh, the very uh, you know that Samoa very recently has been taken almost to the brink of dictatorship Uh, but these are all things that some you know a lot of people uh, could see very clearly were things that Samoa went through 100 years ago. So that's something I've been um, working on. Uh, and I've really enjoyed working, uh, writing those pieces for the conversation. Um, you know, I, the, the political crisis is, you know, I've written a number of pieces as this, as it sort of has dragged on and on and on over, since, um, since April. Um, so I've been working on that, and I've got. I'm also editing a book on Samoan, the Samoan constitutional crisis, which we hope to get out next year. Uh, co-edited by Thomas Silau Sauli Sauni, uh, which we hope mm-hmm. to get out for the 60th anniversary of Samoan independence, which is next June. Um, and that's bringing together a, a really interesting array of of uh, of people. Uh, to, to look at what's happening in Samoa now and, you know, but very much with this historical perspective as well. And in addition to that, uh, I'm also uh, working on a biography of the uh, Australian Hollywood star Errol Flynn, uh-huh. uh, which, which has a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of dimensions about, uh, about colonialism, about whiteness, about uh, about you know the you know racial stereotypes about Hollywood culture, and uh, it's a very um, it's a very rich story. But you know your question before Holger about how to balance the context and the life—that's uh, you know what I'm grappling with. Uh, on a daily basis, as I guess all biographers <laughs> do. But yeah, there's a lot of um, big dimensions, but trying to sort of pair them back into a person's life is sort of, uh, you know, the the um, you know my the things that occupy a lot of my time and thoughts at the moment. Great. These all sounds like uh, sound like amazing projects, Patricia. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you very much, Holger.